It is well. It is well. Take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4, page 958, as we look at this important truth that we need today. We've held many memorial services right here where we gather the church family to comfort, in particular, a family who is grieving deeply. This week, we've all been grieving deeply because Seth is part of our family in a unique way. Because he loved the whole church as family. And that's a good thing. That was Jesus' plan. That, that was Seth's passion, that we would be a church that would be a family church. He, he often referred to that core value that we are a family church. And really what we mean by that is as opposed to a production, a performance, just an accumulation of ministry uh, programs, and we need, I mean, we have to produce, we have to plan and program, but there's something unique about family, and I, I would have to say that this week we have been tested and proven as family in a way that we never have before, and no one would be more pleased than Seth. He would just be embarrassed that it was about him. Oh, my plan for today was to preach a message about the first time Jesus came to earth personally. That can wait. Instead, why don't we talk about the next time Jesus comes to earth personally? Because um, that's when he's coming to raise and rapture us. That's when Jesus is going to come back to unite all of us who live on both sides of human death. All those in his family. So reading from 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14, first of all. Paul's writing to the Thessalonians. It's about A.D. 50. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. We don't want you to be ignorant. There's some things that God wants us to know about those who have died. Isn't that great of God that he would tell us what we need to know? Because he knows that we fear death. He knows that we hurt so bad when death is so close. He knows we're full of questions, and so there are some things he wants us to know, things that we can know and can handle. The Thessalonian Christians who first received this letter from the Apostle Paul were very new in their faith. It had probably been about six months since Paul had been there the first time with Silas to plant the church, and at most he probably spent three 
uh, months with them. And so the Bible that they had was whatever they knew of the Old Testament and whatever Paul had taught them that they could recall by memory. And they did, they did recall that Paul had taught them that Jesus, the one who died and rose again, and in whom we place our faith for eternal life, is coming back again. So they knew that Paul had taught that, the rapture. But what threw them for a doctrinal loop was this question, what about a believer in Christ who dies? Do they miss out on this wonderful event of the rapture? And somewhere in that six months, evidently at least one of their brother or sister's in Christ had had died. So have they missed out? And so Paul writes to answer that question. The answer is impl- implies for us the question. And he is going to explain how that the return of Christ leaves no one out, but rather it's for believers on both sides of death. That you do not grieve with no hope. He did not tell them to stop grieving. He didn't tell them, stop crying. Instead, he puts his arms around these young believers and whispers truth about a different kind of grief than the unbelieving world. Now, keep in mind that this is not Paul trying to explain different styles of grief we might have because of our personalities. Uh, Some this week have grieved quietly. That's okay. Some have grieved out loud, maybe crying out to God, why? Why God? Why Seth? Why now? So some have been processing anger in their grief, anger at God. Some process grief by doing something. We have to help. We have to do something. Help more, talk more, cry with others. So many have gathered to do that this week. It's all good. It's all normal. These are different styles of grief. Mark Vrogop writes about biblical lament in his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. Lament, he says, is giving a person permission to wrestle with sorrow instead of rushing to end it. We have permission. But Paul is not talking about different ways we process grief. He's talking about two radically different categories of grief. And there are only two categories of grief. There is grieving without hope. And there's grieving with hope. We as believers in Christ are in the grieving with hope group, right? The rest of men, sadly, that's the unbelieving world, the ones who have not placed their faith in Christ, who do not understand the reality, the certainty of eternal life in heaven. They're in the no hope category, sadly. So what is hope? Uh, We've explained various times that the word hope, there's no better way to translate the term, but the word hope in the Greek language of the New Testament was just really a different slant than the way we usually use the word hope. Our hope is more of a maybe so, maybe not, wishful uncertainty. Many years I've hoped the Packers would win the Super Bowl. No one wants to grieve with that kind of hope. 
No, hope in the New Testament means confident expectation. Confident expectation. If your little one says, I hope Christmas gets here soon, you can say with complete confidence, Christmas will be here in seven days. You can start tearing off the little construction paper chain link. One more day, it'll be Christmas. Getting closer. Christmas will come. And Paul is promising believers in Jesus, you can grieve with absolute confidence because Jesus will come. And our resurrection and our reunion is certain. Because we believe, verse 14 again, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. First of all, most importantly, Jesus is in this verse. He rose from the dead that Sunday morning. The garden tomb where they laid his body was empty. And he rose from the dead. That is the guarantee, as Pastor Nate just read, of everything. But Seth is in this verse too. Because last Sunday, Seth fell asleep in Jesus. That's the second half of the verse. We believe, this is like a summary statement of the event he's going to describe. We believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So that's Seth and every believer that has fallen asleep in relationship with Jesus Christ by faith. John 11, Jesus was attending a funeral of his friend Lazarus, and just before, in that unique moment, he raised Lazarus from the dead. He said this, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. That's not a contradiction. The death is the human death. There was a box here this last night. It's real. But so is the second part. He who lives and believes in me will never die. And the reason that our text today uses the metaphor of sleep for believers who die is because they are not really dead. Billy Graham, the evangelist, once said, and I understand he was actually quoting D.L. Moody. Graham said, someday the newspaper will announce that Billy Graham has died. Don't believe it. I shall be more fully alive than I am now. We can all say that, that believers keep living. From an earthly perspective, Seth's body is sleeping, but Seth himself is not in some kind of spiritual coma or soul sleep. He is fully alive because, Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So where is Seth? present with the Lord. That's our absolute assurance. You see, heaven doesn't require physical bodies. Matthew 17, Jesus appeared to Peter, James, and John on that mount we call the Transfiguration, where they saw him in his glory in some sense. And he appeared there with Moses and Elijah. And they were having a conversation, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. 
Moses and Elijah are not yet resurrected either. Christ allowed them to be in some temporarily visible form, but they're not resurrected, but they were already present with Jesus, already conversing with Jesus. So last Sunday was Seth's first day in heaven, present with his Savior, and that's why we grieve with confident hope. We all know that Seth's passion was to tell people about Jesus Christ so that they would put their faith in him and him alone and have eternal life in heaven. Evidently, he told everyone he was supposed to and has passed the baton to us. To help us do that, we need to be very distinguishable from those who have no hope. And so as we grieve, that's one way to do it, that we grieve with confidence and encouragement. We grieve with confidence and certainty about life because we have confidence and certainty about death. God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So he's referring to the teaching he had done in Thessalonica about Jesus coming back. And it's interesting to realize that Jesus comes back for his church with his church, the part that has already gone through human death. He's coming back for his church, we who are alive, but he's coming back with his church. Now, Jesus coming back would already be glorious, but Jesus coming back with all those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, that makes it not just glorious, but massive and glorious. We all know that Seth was passionate about the church gathering physically together. Gathering physically makes worship more glorious. We've experienced that this morning, the healing power of worshiping our Savior at a time of grief. We're going to be reunited in this amazing event. God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. So verse 14 is like a summary of this event from heaven's viewpoint, but now the camera angle switches to planet Earth, how it will look for those of us who may be here on Earth when this happens. Verse 15, according to the Lord's own words, so this is something Jesus told Paul personally as an apostle, prophet. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So there are two groups, we who are still alive at this moment, and those who have fallen asleep. And Paul's filling in the blanks uh, of their theology text. 
And he's saying, in answer to their question, that those who are going to be raptured at this great event don't have any advantage over those who have died because this glorious event is not just for those with an earthly zip code. This incredible event is a merging operation in which Jesus unites everyone who has believed in him, specifically from the day of Pentecost Till this moment, that is the church, he's going to unite all of those together into the same physical gathering. This is the resurrection slash rapture. It's both. The final reunion. So today, what we are grieving is a temporary separation from Seth and any believer in Christ. Every parent has watched at some of those earliest ages when you first leave that baby off with a sitter or maybe even grandparents and the baby cries and we smile at that moment because we know that's just what we call separation anxiety because we know that mommy and daddy are coming back And it'll all be okay, but the baby doesn't realize that. The baby is heartbroken because at that moment, with their limited understanding, this feels permanent. What we are experiencing right now is something I think we'll smile about someday because we had separation anxiety, and it's not going to be forever. Because Jesus and Seth and all believers in Christ are coming back for this grand reunion. It's going to be all smiles and praise. God's word explains here how this reunion will work because uh, first of all, phase one is this instantaneous resurrection of verse 16. Then the rapture kind of click, click. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Step one, phase one. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will we, plural, be with the Lord forever. Usually as we study this passage, it's, as we've done, we study as part of prophecy and we're more focused on the, on the rapture aspect that we who are alive might experience this amazing uh, catching up to heaven. But today, of course, our thoughts are a little more on those who have died. But the Lord himself, that, when it says the Lord himself, that is Jesus specifically. God in person, in the flesh, Jesus is still all God, all man. That didn't switch back to some previous condition. He became man at his birth. He still is man. In his resurrection, he received a physical resurrected body. He still has that physical resurrected body. He will come back in that body. And in fact, it's on that day that all of his family, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, those who are still living here, 
with faith in Jesus, it is at that moment all will get that new resurrection body like Christ's. His return to resurrect and rapture will be noisy. Very obvious, loud command, voice of the archangel, trumpet call of God. I personally think that everybody on, on earth is going to hear something. Maybe like the people who were standing around Saul when he was on the road to Damascus and it says that uh, the people around him saw the light and heard the sound but they did not see Jesus like Paul did. Maybe unbelievers will hear the noise but not see Jesus like we will. Noisy and obvious and then he will raise the dead. We don't know, it doesn't say what Jesus will say, shout, or command. But I'm reminded of John 11, again, where Jesus was at Lazarus' funeral. And we know what he said there. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And many have noted it's good he specified Lazarus. Otherwise, the whole cemetery would have emptied. (laughs) But on this day, if he says, come forth, all over the globe, the bodies of Believers in graves, molecules of ashes or sailors lost at sea or from a little cemetery here in Fort Washington, the body of his, bodies of his people, Jesus' people, will be changed, transformed and given life and a new permanent body will be given. The voice of the archangel, maybe, maybe Michael the archangel repeats or accents what Jesus shouts. The trumpet call of God, yet another blast, making sure everybody is at attention. If we think COVID got the world's attention, imagine when a large segment of the world's population is suddenly vanished. This is our moment. This is why we don't fear death. It could happen at any moment. We might not have a second service today. In fact, I had to think maybe, I mean, almost certainly, this will happen during some believer's funeral service. Won't that be a great one? It's a resurrection. So we are confident. We're confident because Jesus rose. We're confident because we will arise And we grieve with confident hope because Jesus is coming back to rapture all who would be alive at this moment. After that, verse 17, after the dead in Christ are raised, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds. This is is a mid-air event. Caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we all will be with the Lord. Imagine this. Taken to heaven without death. I'm volunteering for that. Why do we call this the rapture? Some have said, well, the word rapture isn't found in the the Bible. And that's true in the English Bible. It's actually not even a Greek word. But... One of the translations of the Bible in those early centuries was the Latin Bible, and they used the term rapio, 
rapio or rapamur, and that's the word that caught on. It caught on as being the word for being caught up. This phrase, caught up, is the rapture word, and it means to literally take, snatch, grab, rescue something. If you grab your toddler to walking out off the curb into the traffic, you, you rescue them. And the rapture really is a rescue because we're being rescued from the next event, which is that coming of uh, or the tribulation. I don't think I have those verses. First Thessalonians 1.10 says, And wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Earlier in the same book. Revelation 3.10, Jesus says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that will come upon the whole world. And that's like the introduction to this huge chunk of the book of Revelation, chapters 4 through 18, really in a sense 19, which, in which he is describing what happens on this earth during that seven-year time of judgment when, when God finally judges the world that has rejected and mocked him and his son, Jesus Christ. But this truth about the rapture and resurrection is that we have an incredible forever together because we'll be rescued out before that happens. This, this event was always on Jesus' mind on earth. In fact, the night before he went to the cross, he got together his best friends and he told them about this event. In my father's house are many, are many rooms, he tells the disciples. And this, this is heaven with rooms. Try to picture it because Jesus was trying to picture it. If it were not so, what I have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, and he is, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. He's telling him about this event. I'm going to be leaving. Time will pass. Then I'm going to come and I'm going to take you to be with me when I come back. You see, Jesus knew that that night in the coming hours, his disciples would be stunned and the tragedy, it seems, of the cross. And they wouldn't really be able to understand what's happening. And when he says he's coming back, he's, he's not here referring to coming back in three days, though indeed he came back and he appeared to them. But of course, a couple weeks later, he ascended back to heaven. That's what he's talking about. I'm going to go, and then I'm going to come back and take you to be with me. Well, it happened as he said. And so when he ascended on that day, he had given them their instructions. After he said this, you're going to get the Holy Spirit, and then you're going to be my witnesses, and you're going to tell everybody about Jesus, which evidently we haven't finished doing. I'm, after, after he said this, with these instructions, then it says he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up to the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men, angels dressed in white, stood beside them, Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? <laughs> Don't you have work to do? 
This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. So the plan that he told you about the night before the cross is on schedule because he said he's going to leave and go prepare mansions and houses, uh, places for us. So if he's going to do that, he's gone to do that. And now you have to wait for him to come back. But he is going to be coming back in the same way, physically, visibly, bodily, he went up, that's how he's going to come back. Everything's on schedule, and as we read Thessalonians, it's like 20 years later, when this letter arrives to a small group of newer Christians with, who are grieving and have all these questions, and I'm imagining a, just a, a handful maybe of families meeting in someone's home, upper room of the home, and the letter has come this week from Paul. And so now he's going to explain to them that what he had told them about Jesus coming back is all still on schedule. So after that, we who are alive and are left. We'll be caught up together with them, the ones he just raised, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. It's all going just as God planned it. Could it really happen at any time? Do you notice the pronoun we that Paul uses? Paul thought it would happen in his life. We who are alive and remain. That teaches us that the return of Christ in the rapture is imminent. It can happen at any moment with, with the knowledge we have. Now God knows his knowledge, what has to happen. We don't. So we are to live with that constant expectation he could come back at any time. And the one thing we know for sure, we're about 2,000 years closer than when these words were written. And we will be out of here. And some will skip death. Because death is so hard. In the air. In the clouds. Movies that try to picture the rapture are, uh, they like to speculate what life will be like on earth. It's fascinating, interesting. The Bible doesn't describe the reaction on earth. It describes rather what we will experience because what we will experience is that culminating moment for which we put our faith in Christ that we will be with the Lord forever. We agree with confident hope because there is a future reunion where we will be, yes, with every other believer in Christ, but we will be with the Lord. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage or comfort each other with these words. Where is the Lord right now? He is visibly bodily in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Where is Seth right now? He is with the Lord. None of us have seen Jesus personally on this side of death. Which is why, which is why 1 Corinthians 15, that resurrection chapter, explains to us that we're going to need new bodies to be able to just be with the Lord. You can't just be with the Lord in this one. 1 Corinthians 15. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Not this one. 
nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. means it was new truth when Paul gave this. We will not all sleep. We will not all experience death. But we will all be changed. So even if you don't die before this and get a resurrection body when Christ returns, you're going to need a resurrection body. We will all be changed in, the, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Recognize that? The trumpet will sound and the, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. We need that perfect eternal body. 1 John 3, 2 says that when we see him, we will be like him in that sense. So we have to have a body like his to be with him. Therefore, encourage, comfort each other with these words. Each other. And that's what we've spent the week starting to do. We've started to comfort one another. This word, sometimes it's translated comfort, sometimes encourage. It's really a combination of those. Comfort is speaking of our as we use it, is like our, our loss. Encouragement is the, is the confidence of going on. And I, I think this week we've all had to process the reality that none of us know when is our last day on earth. We usually think about the future in very near future terms. This afternoon, next week, next year. The younger a uh, person will be thinking about future of marriage and career. What do I want to do? Midway, we start thinking about, you know, well, what other career? What can I achieve? What can, you know, should I change careers, save for retirement? And this week we're forced to realize that we're all finite and temporary. And it kind of shocks our system like, Whoa, that could have been me, could have been someone close that I love. That's healthy thinking if we think it through the filter of the Word of God, because we are to think of it with confident hope. That the best is yet to come, so comfort one another. We've grieved differently, but we grieve in the same category. We're the grieving with confident hope people. I remember Seth teaching one time, I think it was pretty recently, and saying something like this, we are all spiritual beings having a physical experience. But who are we really? We are spiritual beings. That's why we anticipate being with the Lord forever. This body is not all there is. We don't need a body to be with Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There is no purgatory. There is no soul sleep. And there is no angel asking Santa Claus questions like, have you been naughty or nice? There's only one issue, and that issue is, have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? who died for your sins and rose again.
We heard last night how Seth had made that decision as a young boy, five, six years old. It's pretty much my story. I don't know your story. This morning as you hear this, if you're questioning, do I really have that confidence, that hope? Ask yourself the simple question, what are you trusting in for eternal life? Are you trusting in you? Something you've done, something good, something religious? Or are you trusting in Christ? The one who paid for your sins on the cross, was raised to death, proving the payment was made? Are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone? I would urge you, and the echo of Seth's heart would urge you to place your faith in Christ and Christ alone. It's the only place we have confident hope. It is an absolute certainty that we will be with the Lord immediately and forever and together. Among the many social media posts and memories I saw this week, I enjoyed one from one of Seth and Anya's friends who wrote what their 11-year-old said when he heard the news that Seth was with Jesus. The 11-year-old said, I bet he's thinking right now that this is 100 times better than he expected. <laughs> I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have grieved and cried and tried to fathom your ways and we give up and know that your ways are perfect. We trust you. We rest on your sovereignty and we bask in your care. We want to pray in a special way for Seth's family. Anya and the kids and the future that they take day by day. We love them. We pray for them. And we ask you to do a very special work in them. Help us to know how to help them. I pray for each of us that we would uh, take this event that has touched us each in some personal way and uh, we would see what you are doing. We ask the question, what are you teaching us? What perspective about this life and about eternity are you, are you communicating this difficult and painful moment? And we rest in the fact that you will do something good. You are our good, good Father.